Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, or securities are for illustrative purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instrument, securities, or adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, we've made it to the final TVP episode of 2023. I hope you have some relaxing plans to celebrate the end of the year. Our guest for this episode is Ian Lance, a UK value fund manager at RWC Partners. But before he was at RWC, he actually worked at Schroeder's. And whilst he was here, he worked very closely with Nick and Kevin's mentor, Nick Purvis. And Purvis is the originator of a phrase that every value investor at Schroeder's has been taught. If no companies in the portfolio are going bankrupt on a yearly basis, then you're not taking enough risk. Also, whilst at Schroeder's in 2010, Ian had a very bright idea to start a blog on value investing. That blog went on to become the value perspective, and then it went on to become this podcast. So we very much consider him our grandfather. As we close out this 10th anniversary year for the value franchise at Schroeder's, we are delighted to have Ian on the pod to discuss what it was like to work with Nick Purvis in the start of the value perspective, what has changed and what has stayed the same in the city of London over an almost four decade career, co-management and the risk of confirmation bias, What is the most difficult thing about value investing in today's market? And finally, is the UK a dead asset class? Enjoy. Ian Lance, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good. Very good. Thank you very much for having me. Ian, for those that don't know who you are, could you please walk us briefly through your journey? Yeah, certainly. So I've been investing for about 35 years. In the 90s, I worked at a a UK pension fund company called Gartmore. Early 2000s, I was at uh, the US Bank Citigroup on the asset management side. And, and I suppose that's this is where it gets really interesting. I used to work at Schroeder's with some of your colleagues, and I'm sure we'll come back and discuss that later on. And I worked with a chap called Nick Purvis in, in 2010. Myself and Nick left and went to what was RWC at the time, which was actually run by a young fellow called Peter Harrison. I think some of you <laughs> might know him. And, uh, and and we've been there ever since. So, so Nick and I have basically been running value strategies together for about the last 15 years or so. Well, welcome back to Schroders. It's a pleasure to have you back. Thank you. Nick is quite a legend in my team to a certain extent because he sort of mentored the co-heads, both right. uh, Nick Kirich and Kevin Murphy. So in honor to the fact that this is the 10-year anniversary of my team and the fact that Nick has such a strong reputation how is it working with Nick? What's been your experience? Because you guys have been together for, what, more than 15 years yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's been very good. I, I, I guess I better better say that because he might be listening. <laughs> um, no, it has been very good. I think 
we might talk about this later. One of the um, most important about things about value investing is having working with people who are ideologically aligned with you and when Nick and I first met I think we, you know instantly we thought we, we just see eye to eye on everything um, we often get asked the question what do you do if one of you wants to buy a stock and the other one doesn't mm. and the honest answer is that has never happened the reason <laughs> that this never happened is because effectively we're looking for the same things in stocks, and we sort of we either evolve towards an answer, you know, or we don't. So we, so uh, yeah, the, the the partnership's been really good. It's really it's worked really well. Your presence here is also very important because Kevin Murphy told me a story about the very early days of the value perspective blog. Yes. and he actually said that the whole idea of the blog, which preceded the podcast, and the podcast wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the blog. The the mastermind behind that was. It was you, actually. You invented the value perspective. Could you tell us a little bit that story, please? Yes, yeah, certainly. I, I, I've always enjoyed reading the investor letters of successful value investors and, and value investment firms. And I, I suppose I had an idea to try and do something along those sorts of lines. Now, I, I, I should give some credit to, um, there was a head of sales at the time called Robin Stokely. And actually, he wanted to do for value investing what M&G with their Bond Vigilantes blog had done for, you know, for fixed income. So, he was very much behind that as well. But the idea was, to, I, I literally, I think the first one that I ever wrote was called, What is Value Investing? Okay. So, the, the idea was to try to educate and inform our investors and potential investors. And I, and I think that's really important because, you know, as you'll be very well aware, value investing goes in and out of favour. If your client's expectations are set correctly, then it's much more likely that they will stay with you during those bad periods. And of course, it's really important that they stay with you through through those bad periods. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I, I sort of kick the thing off. I don't, I don't think it got very far. I think I wrote about sort of, you know, six letters or so. <laughs> Although actually the time that I was writing them was quite interesting because uh, it was going into the financial crisis. So, mm. so there were some quite interesting ones. And, uh, you know, it's it's come on a long, long way since then, hasn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that the... The blog went, I mean, the, the blog's still alive. It's just that the podcast has taken over and it's an extension to the blog. And we are now conducting the interviews and providing transcripts to, to those interviews on, on the blog. But Kevin mentioned that at the very inception, the name of the blog was not The Value Perspective. It had a different name. Do you remember what that oh, could have been? I think been? it was called Far From The Madding Crowd. Is that correct? <laughs> I think that, that rings a bell. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's super interesting. Well, yeah. thank you very much for starting that because without you, this session and the last 92 episodes might not have been, uh, might have taken place. And you started your career in 1988. And I think that unexpected question is what has changed over that period of time since you first started your investing career? But I'm going to follow up that question with what hasn't changed over those almost uh, for decades. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've got to remember this is a long, long time ago, 35 years ago. Um, and so things have, have, have changed very dramatically. I mean, it literally, let's look at use of technology. Uh, the first van management company that I worked at, there was one TV set in the corner of the office. And I think it had three screens showing share prices on it. You pressed M1, M2 or M3. When we dealt, we wrote down orders on carbon copy paper you know, and, and handed them out to the dealer. So technology, whereas obviously today we've got AI based, able to go through a company results in, in sort of nanoseconds and summarize them. So technology has changed. 
the city was a very colourful place back then. Myself and Nick will often tell stories about going to uh, uh, company lunches at uh, places like Warburg's. So you might be sitting down with the CEO of ICI or something like that. But only after you'd had a couple of gin and tonics, you know, white wine, red wine, brandy and cigars. <laughs> so the, the city was very, very different then. I think this is this is a really interesting one. Asset allocation has changed massively. When I was at Gartner in the 90s and Nick at the same time was at Schroeder's, we were running balanced pension funds. Now, a balanced pension fund at that time would have 55% invested in UK equities, not 55% of its, of its equity exposure, 55% mm. of the entire portfolio. Wow. It might only have... 10% in US equities, and wow. then it might have 10% in bonds and a couple of percent in emerging markets, et cetera, et cetera. So that was very, very different. The landscape was dominated by four big firms. So Nick was at Schroeder's at the time. I was at Gartmore, as I've mentioned. And then there were two other firms, PDFM, which was a famous value fund manager, and Mercury, uh, which obviously became Merrill Lynch and became BlackRock um, today. So th the, those big four dominated the pension fund m m market. So that was um, that was very, very different. As value houses or they dominated the entire so, space? Um, so Gartmore was probably more of a growth house. Uh, PDFM was very, very value. Schroeder's had a value bias. Um, I'm, you, you pro I'm sure you heard the name Jim Cox. There was a, a fund manager here called Jim Cox who was head of UK equities. And he, he was Nick Pose his mentor, actually, okay, and he, he was a, a, a very well-known value fund manager. Yeah, so it was a mix. What else has changed? I think another thing is actually I, I would say that most places had a bias towards fundamental research and valuation. So even the big life companies, with, you know, legal in general or, or sort of Scottish widows or whatever, most of the people investing in those places would have some sort of valuation filter that they invested with. I would say, you know, that's that, that's quite different today. What hasn't changed over that time, because this sounds like an awful lot has changed. I think the, probably the one thing that really hasn't changed is that I think share prices are still set by human behavioural biases. So, the emotions of fear and greed are something that human beings are, are, will probably never get rid of. And they still cause that overreaction in share prices above and below intrinsic value. And I think, you know, that's that was definitely something that was around in the early days. And it's and you know, clearly it's something that, that, that is around today. Do you think that with the growth of passive and ETFs, price discovery has been lost? Yes. Yes, I do. Yes. And you know, maybe we'll come on and talk about this later. But Nick and I often talk about the changing nature of market participants. And there are now, you know, significant numbers of people who either don't care about valuation because they're passive and so all they're interested in is the weight of the stock within the index. The valuation is completely and utterly irrelevant to them. I think there are other people for whom valuation sort of matters, but it's not the primary driver. So, you know, price momentum might be the more important thing or whether a company is going to beat or miss its earnings forecast is more important than the valuation of the stock at the time. And when you kind of add all those people up, it, it, you know, I'd actually like to get some numbers for this, but it feels like it's now probably the majority of the market and the percentage of people for whom valuation is is their sort of you know their central tenor feels like that's a smaller and smaller part of the market today which actually leads me to my next question it's been clearly a tough market for the last decade if you are a value investor in the UK or otherwise and so i wanted to ask you how do you and the team from a process point of view, remain or have remained resilient over this period of time and avoid the scene of style drifting? 
Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm, the first one is is that word process. I think you know we have a very clearly defined process. I mean, at the end of the day, we spend pretty much all of our time just trying to figure out what individual companies are worth. And then you compare that to the share price, and they, you know that's basically what we've done you know, throughout our entire vet investing careers. We know that it doesn't always work, but but over the long period of time, it has worked for us. And then to a certain to a certain extent, you you, you sort of almost ask yourself, well, why would you give up on that? So that's I guess that's point number one. Point number two is experience. You, you know, Nick and I have been through a few cycles, seeing value work and not work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what that's taught us is that it's absolutely fatal to give up on it because <laughs> the time that you give up on it will be the time that it turns. And it, quite rightly, your, your clients really, really get angry. If, if they've appointed you to be a value investor and you basically drift from doing that and then value turns in, in, you know, in, in your direction and you don't do well, that is the point at the time that people give up on you. And, and they should, by the way, if you've drifted. So that's another factor. I think an, an, another factor actually is having two of you. Um, so if I, you know, if I went to Nick and said to him, I think LVMH looks quite cheap. Why don't we go and have a look at that? You know, he'd give me pretty short shrift. So I think having two of you definitely helps. And then I think a final thing is having a supportive firm and having supportive clients. So there's more pressure on you to drift if there is someone tapping you on the shoulder saying, you know, right, you've had two bad quarters, you better not have another bad quarter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then, you know, your sort of career preservation instinct starts to kick in. So if you've got a firm that doesn't do that and clients that do, don't do that, then that's that's really important. I think that there's, it's not a surprise that the culture of my team is that of co-management. Yeah. Every single product is co-managed. That's probably because Nick and Kev learned that by the example set by others. I am of the personal opinion that management is one of those things that either work very well or never work at all. What has been the secret of being able to manage a fund with someone else for such a long time? And wouldn't that lead sometimes to confirmation bias? Yeah, that, you know, that is a really good question. I think the, the secret is, is what I mentioned earlier on is, is, is being ideologically aligned. Because if, you're, if you weren't ideologically aligned, then inevitably you are going to have disagreements. And, you know, eventually I think those probably become quite unsettling and co-managing a fund if you don't see eye to eye must be pretty difficult. Fortunately, Nick and I do. Your point about confirmation bias is a really good one, actually, because um, I think it's it, this is potentially one of the traps for value investors because you you start off with a thesis, don't you, that that maybe the market thinks that this business is in structural decline and you disagree with the market and you know you, you think that the earnings are going to going to mean revert upwards and then basically you know you get you get sort of one profits warning, two profits warnings, and I think that there is a real risk in the, the fact that you're always looking for the for the data that supports your initial view that no, in actual fact, this isn't a structural decliner. So, how do you try to cope with that? One way that we do it now, we started doing, is when you're looking at an investment thesis for a company, actually write down what would be the things that would basically invalidate this thesis, mm. and do do that before the actual purchase. Then, if those things happen, <laughs> then you, you know that you've said to yourself, you know, before the event, if, if this happens, it's probably a signal that you know my thesis is wrong. Uh, so I think that's you know that's one way that you can. And if that or when that has happened in the past, is that an indication that you need to exit the position? I mean, it's like a, so. What you're doing in essence is the in decision making 
tool framework that's essentially a Ulysses contract or what Michael Mabusin has called a man overboard situation where you are making a contract with yourself that if an action takes place, then you don't ask any more questions, you're just out. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. Rather, rather than, because if you don't do that, you, you know, inevitably that confirmation bias kicks in and, mm. and, you, and you think, well, yeah, they might have had these bad figures, but, you know, it's, I, I still reckon, you know, it's, it's going to come through in the fullness of time. So, Ian, what is the most difficult thing about being a value investor in today's market? Do, uh, as you know, Juan, being a value investor is hard anyway. Um, why? Because you're, because as I'm sure lots of your previous guests will say, you know, human beings are high, hardwired, aren't they, to run with the crowd? You know, we've we've evolved over thousands of years in that in that way. And I think James Montier has described being a value investor as like repeatedly having your arm broken. You know, so you're you're basically <laughs> getting that pain again and again and again. And, and we and we kind of we all know that's why you get paid a premium in the end because you are basically buying things that other people are telling you you should shouldn't go in anywhere near. Um, so so being a value investor is hard anyway. What's what's really difficult today is that you go through all that pain. Things ultimately work out. So, in actual fact, over the last over the last few years, actually, our, our returns have been pretty good, particularly over the last three years. And lots of investors are still deserting us in droves, mm. and that is hard because historically, I suppose we used to accept the fact that we would go through bad periods. And although we disagreed with people leaving at that point in time, because we always had the belief that what we were doing would come back, uh, we could kind of understand why they were throwing the towel in. These days, people aren't. People aren't abandoning value investing because it's done badly. What they're doing is, in, in lots of cases, they've made a decision that they're either going passive, so they, you know, they just don't care about value investing. In lots of cases, people have just made the decision that they're going UK to global, mm-hmm. so they're basically selling down UK equities and you know UK value in particular to go global. And of course, today that means selling down, you know, in, in our opinion, some very cheap equities and going and buying what look to us like some pretty expensive equities in the US in particular. So that's, you know, that that that's really really frustrating because it kind of it kind of feels feels like it should be a time in which you know people are really getting behind us but in actual fact for other reasons actually people are going in the opposite direction. That's really yeah. frustrating. Well, we can definitely understand that frustration. Yeah, I bet. Many investors nowadays try to better understand human heuristics and build and execute on a process that helps them guard themselves against those biases and maybe even take advantage of them. What is, in your opinion, the most difficult bias to fight against and how do you guys at Redwheel have thought about dealing with it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one because we always, when we're explaining our investment philosophy, we always say that we exploit behavioral biases in other people. So things like risk aversion, extrapolation, overreaction, et cetera, et cetera. We think that those things are the things that move share prices by more than is you know, warranted in the change in the underlying intrinsic value of a business. But myself and Nick are humans, so we must have some behavioral biases, mm-hmm. mustn't we? And I think probably we, we touched on it earlier on. It, it, confirmation bias is probably, I think, one of the most difficult ones for us as, as value investors always looking for the thing which is going to validate our thesis and, and maybe sort of not paying so much attention to to the things which are going to invalidate our thesis. But it is a really tough one because, you know, there have been lots of situations in the past when we, we've bought something, you know, it's had, it's had a couple of profits warnings, share price has gone down, 
we've added to it. And ultimately, actually, we've added to it successfully. So so actually, the, the decline in the share price ended up being a good thing. And often, these were companies which were written off by the market. They were, you know, a lot of retail was written off by the market, wasn't it? Because there was this sort of view that ultimately Amazon was going to be the winner and all other retailers were going to be the loser. And so lots of uh, lots of retail businesses traded at sort of very, very distressed valuations. And for a while, you know, probably a lot of the data actually would have told you that that, that you know, they, that those were structural decliners. Now, as it happens, some of them have come back very, very strongly. Um, Marks and Spencer is a really good example there. That business has really turned the corner has done and has done very well. So I said it's a long-winded way of answering your question, but but I, I suppose what I'm saying is, you know, Sometimes there are sort of data points that might have led you to have thought, you know, no, we've got this one wrong, and actually sticking with them ultimately did pay off. So it's, I find this one really, really hard. Mm. I want to change tags a little bit here. There has been a, a lot of talks, and you actually make a, made a reference to this in one of your previous answers that the UK market has become a debt asset class over the course of the last few yeah. years. And you made a reference that people have decided to make an asset allocation decision to move away from the UK to more global uh, markets in, in their own nature. What is your personal opinion about this phenomenon or comment? Is this narrative or reality? Yes, it's a, it's a, it's, again, this is a really interesting subject. So let, let's break it down into different parts. I, I'm afraid I, f I forget his name, but I listened to uh, one of the Schroeder strategies on Marion Somerset Ware's podcast recently. And actually, he was talking about the decline in the number of stocks within the UK market. And, you know, that is a factor that you cannot ignore. Now, he, he did actually make the point that it has happened in lots of other yeah. markets as well. Don Duncan Lamont. That's exactly, exactly, yes. yeah, exactly right. No, he made the point that that's happened in lots of other markets. But, you know, it's, I mean, that is a bad thing for UK investors. I think it's probably a bad thing for the UK economy as well. Mm. And I, I think it is the sort of thing that governments and, you know, other institutions need to work together to try to solve because we should have a healthy capital market. We should have new businesses willing to list themselves on the stock market and not always take the decision, I'm going to remain private or, you know, I'm going to sell out to private equity or, or, or I'm going to list in the US. So that's that. That's kind of factor number one. Factor number two is the, what we touched on earlier on, the fact that you know pension funds have gone from 55% in UK equities to 4%. That's probably not going to change. I don't really see pension funds going back in the opposite direction. So that money probably has left these shores and gone. I suppose the best you can say is that hopefully it's it's nearly bottom. We're so close to zero; it can't get much worse. And you know, and lots of the big wealth managers have done the same. They now look at market cap weightings when they do their asset allocation, and therefore they tend to have very high weighting to the US, low weighting um, to the UK. So that's probably not going to change. What's the positive case for the UK? It's, you know, it comes back to our old favourite valuation. When we look at the valuation of the UK, uh, we have a we have a fifty year chart looking at the value of the. UK relative to MSCI world, it's a 50-year low. You know, on average, it's traded about 17% discount. Today, we're at about 40% discount. Mm -hmm. And it's, I always find it interesting, look, go, go and look at some global stocks, because even if you're very, very bearish on the UK economy, that isn't really going to be a factor for a company like 
BP or Shell, who happen to be listed in London, but they got less than ten percent of their profits come from the UK, mm. and yeah, they trade on about half the valuation of their of their US peers. So, mm. I still think the starting valuation of the UK market is going to be a, a positive factor in the future. And you know, we've been, as I'm sure you have, pointing this out to people for you know, a number of years, and we always sort of sit there and wait for the question to come up: what's going to be the catalyst? Yeah. And in actual fact, we have actually started to see a catalyst. And it's the fact that I think companies have begun to accept that there isn't going to be a wall of money coming back in the opposite direction to drive up their valuations. And therefore, they can either get frustrated about it or they can use it to their advantage. And using it to their advantage is basically buying back their own shares. Mm. And what we've seen in the last year is an increasing number of UK companies doing that. So again, we've got a you know a good chart looking at the by market, the percentage of companies that have bought back their stock in the last year. And the UK is now the leading the leader. It's about, about 50% of UK companies have bought back their stock in the last year. And so, you know, actually now, not, not only can I see the, the low valuation, but I can see the mechanism to the sort of realisation of that undervaluation as well. So, you know, I, th- I, think, um, I think the outlook for the UK market is pretty attractive at the moment. Would you say that there's something more structural in the sense that the UK, together with Europe, lacks the presence in the market of a very important sector, which is information technology, which is pretty much what has driven the valuations in some other places. Yes, absolutely right. And, and you know, there are times that that's a bad thing and there are times that's a good thing. Um, so if you looked at the performance of the US market post-2000, having a very low exposure to te- information technology was a good thing. You know, I'm sure you would have heard lots of people talk about a potential re- regime change. And what, what they mean by that is we've been through... 10 to 15 years in which you know interest rates just went in one direction down to zero, quantitative easing, et cetera, et cetera. And that was very, very good for long duration assets. So information and technology stocks, you know, quality growth stocks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a reasonable chance that those days are gone and they're not coming back anytime soon. But I, I personally don't subscribe to the view that interest rates are back on their way to, to, to zero. And therefore, maybe the stocks that do well in the next 10 years are a completely different set of stocks to the stocks that did well um, in the last 10 years. So, you know, maybe but a bit like post 2000, in which the best place to be was tobacco utilities, you know, all the old economy stocks, maybe the, the best place to be in the next 10 years is going to be, you know, not in information technology and, you know, branded consumer staples, et cetera. Maybe it's going to be in energy companies and mining companies and, you know. Financials. Financials, yeah, is, exactly, exactly. So in, in which case, actually, having a low having a low weight into information technology and a high weight into those sectors could be a good thing, couldn't it? Yeah. David Einhorn made a comment that started a lot of conversations among value investors at the beginning of the year when he made the point that value investing as a business, not as an investment philosophy, as a business, was dead. And I have asked this question to other value investors in the past that run their own jobs. And I was very curious to listen from you. What are your thoughts on that? And I think that this tallies quite well with that comment I made at the beginning of the conversation about price discovery being lost. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So I actually wrote on this um, a few weeks ago uh, because I think I, I thought it was really, really interesting. And I would say, I would start by saying, actually, 
I think some people have been a little bit naughty and have quoted him out of context. Um, <laughs> particularly people who are not value investors <laughs> have leapt on that and said, you know, oh, look, even David Einhorn is giving up on value investing. Okay, so let's look at what he actually said. What he actually said was, he said, the market is still dominated by investors that will either not, brackets, index funds, cannot, brackets, untrained novice investors, or choose not to, brackets, valuation in different professional investors, have valuation as a cornerstone of their of their process. So that's that's what he was saying. He was saying that, you know, it, it, it's quite what we were saying earlier on, that when you look at market participants, the number of people who, who use valuation as a cornerstone of their process is getting kind of smaller and smaller and smaller. He then went on to say, effectively, what he's saying here is that the the the, the way that you, as a value investor, realise value is going to have to change. So he basically said it used to be that we could buy something at a reasonably low multiple, whatever we thought it was, see the company do somewhat better, benefit from doing it somewhat better, and realise that other investors would see what we saw six months later or a year later, would re-rate the shares so that we, you'd buy something on 10 times earnings, you'd get another three points on the multiple, and you'd make 50% after three years. That isn't happening anymore because there's nobody to notice what actually happened to these companies. Nobody knows what anything is worth. So that's what he was saying, and I have to say, I you know I completely and utterly agree with that, and it, that really chimes with um, almost going back actually to our first question on what's changed in the uh, UK market. So back in 2000, you could buy you could buy something um, that was quite lowly valued. And there often was a wall of money that would come in behind you. So um, I mentioned in the UK, uh, firms like um, PDFM were a very big firm. And then there were very big uh, US value in firms. There was a, a very famous firm called Brandis Investors, and they would come in. And, and so actually, you know, often you would buy something and this wall of value money would come in behind it and would, and would drive the valuation back up. Th th those days really are gone. I think I think there just there just isn't enough value money um, to do that, and therefore it is incumbent upon the companies um, to do that themselves. And you know, as, as we, we were discussing earlier on with share buybacks, I'll just 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 to kind of sort of finish this this discussion because that's what David Einhorn went on to say. He went on to say effectively that what, what you've got to invest in companies that can realise that. Uh, value themselves, and he he used the example of a department store that they were invested in called Dillard's, mm. and you know Dillard's is a department store, it's not a great business, so there's very little growth, but they basically generated cash and they just sat there every year buying back stock, buying back stock, and it kind of, as he says, uh, it, you know it went it went nowhere for sort of years and years and years. We said, but you got to the point where there's pretty much no stock left, and they really kind of bought back, and after years and years and years of the stock underperforming, suddenly it went up six hundred percent, and it really did. It went up six hundred percent in one year. And I think, you know, that's I subscribe to that view that um, you need to be invested in companies now that can be proactive about realizing value. So, but, you know, buy companies where they've got a, a good business, they've got a good balance sheet, they're generating cash and they can use that excess cash to buy back their stock. And if I maybe um, at the risk of labouring this, one of our favourite examples of this is the retailer Next. So, so again, we wrote about this recently, and the figure's just incredible. If you'd invested £100 in Next in 2000, today it would be worth £1,800. That's about a 15% per annum total return. Mm. And across that period of time, they've only grown their top line at 4% per annum, which is in line with UK GDP. And so, you know, how on earth do you get a company which grows its mm. top line at 4 to give you a 15% per annum total return? Share buybacks. So, 
Lord Wilson has bought back, believe it or not, two thirds of the company's shares in issue across that period of time. And therefore, even though the top line's only grown at four, the earnings per share, you know, have compounded at about 15% per annum, and of course the dividends per share, et cetera, et cetera. And that to my mind is almost the sort of poster child for, you know, for the for the value investor today. When you sit down with companies and the management of companies and you bring up the issue of share buybacks as an active capital allocation decision, what do you think is the reception that they that you are getting from them? Do do they understand the need to do capital allocation that way? Do they understand that is the price at which they are buying their own shares is important in the equation? How how do you think that they are thinking about it? It varies, as you can imagine, but I think the the longer time goes on, and we, I'm sure, like you, we, you know, we meet we meet with lots of companies, and often the CEO just looks so depressed, and they're sat across the other side of the table from us, virtually with their head in their hands, saying, you know, look, what what is going on? My business is doing well. Why am I on a P of eight, and you know, sorry, a P of five, and a dividend yield of eight? And and, and so that, we, you know, we say to them, well, look, just rather than getting frustrated about it, go, go and do something about it. Buy back your stock. And, the, and the, I, I say, I think the longer the companies are sat there with these very, very depressed share prices, the more that the penny starts to drop with people that I, you know, I need to start um, choosing share buybacks as a, as a capital allocation decision. For lots of CEOs, you've got to remember they spent a long period of time, you know, climbing the, the greasy pole to get to the top. Mm. They probably didn't set out with a with a view that when when I arrive, you know, in the CEO's office, I'm going to sit there all day buying back my own stock. They <laughs> they probably thought that they were going to grow their business either organically or by acquisition. So, I think it is a cultural shift mm. for some people, but an, <clears> an, you know, an important one. And the, the figures I quoted earlier on about the you know the percentage buybacks in the U, UK market that kind of supports the view. I think that increasingly the penny is starting to drop. Really interesting. Ian, before we let you go, we ask our guests for a book recommendation. And I think that you look like someone that reads a lot. So could you provide us with one or two book recommendations? Yes. So actually, my all-time favorite is actually the Seth Klarman book, Margin of Safety. And there are lots of apocryphal stories about this book selling on eBay for sort of, you know, 14,000 pounds. The the book is available if you try, if you go and look for it, the book, you know, the the book is available. I like that book because it sets things out in a very, very common sense way. You know, it just, it just continually rams home this point about value investing is about basically, um, Working out how much a business is worth, and then basically paying a lot less for it than it is worth, and and that is your margin of safety. You know that is why the book is called is called Margin of Safety. And he just see, he actually he sets that out in a way that um, I think even even a sort of lay investor um, could understand. It's it's very clear, very very concise, and and you know very well put together. Well, I'm very happy that you mentioned that book because that was my inoculation into value investing ah, and great. I became there a value investor after reading that. So thank you very much for that. And thank you very much for coming back to Chillers. Uh, pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation. 